Friday, February 11th, 2022, and we're still all here. How about that? Welcome to Raging Chicken's Out the Coop Podcast. This is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. Each week, I break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. Now, you can help support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Just head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress. You can also help out the show right now by heading on over to our YouTube channel, if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. And look, if you listen to our podcast, you listen to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or like our iTunes, make sure you head on over there and give us a five-star review. That helps other people find the show. Um, our podcast number has been pretty, pretty cool lately, um, and I'm very thrilled. Anyways, today's show, whoa, what can we not talk about? <laughs> so what a week, what a week. Um, and I was just realizing right before I, I got kind of caught up in finding some of the live updates of what's happening in these kind of like the Freedom Convoy, or whatever the hell they're calling that thing up there in Canada, the trucker protest. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm like, I'm going to lay here. Um, and I didn't even just realize, looking at the show notes, I didn't even put in, like, the Trump toilet scandal stuff. Um, so you got that, right? Trump flushing down documents. Uh, pretty crazy. Russia's also taken a few steps closer to provoking war in Ukraine. I can't let make anybody feel very good. And the Canadian trucker protests have been intensifying. Uh, three international bridges have been blocked and supply lines are being further jammed up. I know GM has had to shut down some plants because they're not getting um, some of the parts that they normally get from Canada. Um, it's been pretty crazy. The Biden administration is urging the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to use his federal powers to end the bridge blockade. And copycat protests are creeping up in other parts of the country and even across the world. A new reporting today in the New York Times suggests that weekend protests in the United States, supposed to be, I guess they're going to be going from California to Washington, D.C., these trucker protests. Um, well, they may disrupt the Super Bowl this weekend, and that's according to the Department of Homeland Security. Pretty crazy. And as the COVID number case or cases start to uh, start that one again, as the number of COVID cases start to slowly decrease, even Democratic governors are racing ahead of scientists to roll back the pandemic safety protocol protocols. So much for listening to the scientists. <laughs> yeah, remember that? Remember that was like an article of faith. I guess not. When it comes to political expediency, you abandon the scientists in a heartbeat. Meanwhile, the new Omicron, Omicron subvariant, which is now dominant in South Africa, this is the so-called stealth variant or whatever, um, and it is spreading rapidly. It spreads much more, uh, much more quickly even than the regular Omicron. But they're saying that it's not more deadly. Um, but we could still see more, which is fun. And it looks like sticking our heads in the sand during a pandemic isn't an entirely new American practice. 
Nope. Writing in the Washington Post, uh, Jeff McHugh, Jess McHugh um, took a really interesting look at what happened ahead of the fourth wave of the Spanish flu um, back in 1918, 1919. Um, Tony's, that was just fascinating and a bit of a bit, uh, a bit of a downer of a read, I have to say. But we'll talk to you a little bit about that. Speaking of downers, Australia has just designated koalas as an endangered species. Environment Minister uh, Suzanne Lay said in a statement, quote, the impact of prolonged drought followed by the black summer bushfires um, and the cumulative impacts of disease, urbanization, and habitat loss over the past 20 years have led to the new designations. A little closer to home, PA Supreme Court put a hold on the period for candidates to gather signature petitions to qualify for the May 17th primary. Really, Pennsylvania right now, what's happening in Pennsylvania voting laws and uh, it's just it's it's confusing and it's happening fast with all this redistricting. According to the AP, say, for example, the three week petition gathering period was set to kick off on Tuesday and last for three weeks. This is kind of the normal period. Right. Instead, the uh, PA Supreme Court noted it um, was hearing oral arguments on February 18th in a case that will determine the lines of congressional districts. So basically what's happening here is because these district maps have not been set, the, the, the state Supreme Court is going to have to decide on what is going to be a fair district map. But remember, last week we talked about this, the PA Commonwealth Court was saying like, oh, no, we just got to pick one of these Republican ones, basically. Right. Um, and but that's a kind of GOP dominated court. And now it's going to the state Supreme Court, which leans more on kind of the Democratic side of things. Um, we're not entirely sure what's going to happen. Um, I know that some folks have believed that this is um, the state Supreme Court is simply just going to redraw the maps like they had to do last time. Uh, we shall see. I'm not so sure. Um, but it, it's basically jamming up the entire process at this point. So Administrative Office of Pennsylvania Court spokes, uh, spokeswoman Stacy Wittelick said that the order pertains to all races and keeps the primary da- date intact. The order did not say when the court will produce the new petition gathering period. So there's supposed to be a three-week petition gathering period. Um, the primary is set for May 17th, and now they're saying that, well, now we're going to try to keep that date intact closer we get, you see what I'm saying, right? The things more gets gets compressed. And of course, there's all sorts of other legal challenges and stuff that are going on from uh, regarding uh, voting procedures and stuff. And we'll get into that a little bit this coming week. I'll tell you a little bit about what we're going to have the show on Monday. And Victor Martinez, a Lehigh Valley uh, Latino radio station owner, says that he may join Republicans to contest newly drawn congressional maps. According to the Pennsylvania Capital Star, quote, Martinez has argued that the maps as currently drawn will dilute the voting power of Pennsylvania's Latino residents, even though they were the fa- even though they're the fastest growing demographic group in Pennsylvania. Like this stuff gets really complex once you see where these lines are drawn and so on. So even though it looks like in the Lehigh Valley area that you're going to have an increase of Democratic representation in the area, um, there's some dilution, according to the article, of these um, kind of Latino dominated districts, right? Um, they're not kind of made into minority Latino districts, but they're in terms of like, you know, the power of la- the, the Latino vote in those areas, the claims are being made that it's being diluted, and this is um, kind of unfair. It's going to be really fascinating to see how this plays out. And Central Buck School District's field trip to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. was canceled this week because some school board members were upset with D.C.'s strict vaccination requirements. 
Yep. Diana Lagerman, who you know we've had on the show, is former school board candidate in Central Fox. Uh, she tweeted out her outrage at the cancellations, and it went viral with more than 90,000 people viewing her tweet. We're going to talk a little about that story. It's a great story um, and uh, the, the process of what happened here um, and, and the fact that when people were expressing their concern about this, some members basically said, well, they could just go to Dorney Park, like a little amusement park up in Allentown instead. Because it's the same thing, you know, D.C., the Holocaust Museum, and Dory Park with water rides. Somehow, those don't seem like equivalents. Oh, God. And, oh, God, in the more Lehigh Valley news, the Bethlehem-based alt-right podcaster Joseph Paul Berger is facing federal charges for allegedly stockpiling a cache of more than a dozen unregistered machine guns. According to the Philadelphia Inquirer, Lehigh County prosecutors say that Berger once encouraged his listeners to, quote, assassinate lawmakers, lobbyists, and left-wing billionaires with explosives. Berger was also found to be 3D printing a collection of untraceable so-called ghost guns in his parents' basement. And his father, apparently in on the deal, was also arrested. In today's last call, NASA now says that SpaceX's Starlink, you know, that little kind of uh, collection of small satellites to give us Internet um, anywhere on the planet, that kind of thing. Well, it may actually interfere with the Hubble Space Telescope's ability to see things and even NASA's ability to detect incoming asteroids. (laughs) Don't look up. Don't look up. Oh, man, I just finished uh, season one of uh, uh, season one. I'm going to have to talk about two things here. Uh, Season one of um, uh, Foundation. And I'm glad I kind of finished it. It's actually now I'm actually I got I'm at the point in the series where I'm kind of very, very intrigued. Um, And some things kind of click together in my head, which I'm very kind of excited about. And I like the way this is going. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about the planet. And then also, uh, for those folks, you know, in the D&D world, uh, you know that I've been kind of a little bit obsessed with D&D as of late. And um, so I started uh, Critical Role, which is kind of, you know, the streaming uh, D&D show that really kind of like took off, right? And kind of like led to a whole series of other kind of shows kind of coming out and stuff like that really kind of caved the way opened up for this kind of popularization of um these online streaming games of voice actors and things like this role-playing games and um they uh have a newly launched series uh, it's an animated series based upon the first season of it. it's called uh, vox machina the legend of vox machina something like this and it's like i have to say i have to admit i was kind of excited to see it and that I'm just left with some troubling things afterwards. <laughs> so we'll, kind of, we'll come back to it. Um, we'll come back to the last call. I am looking forward to uh, starting Ozark, uh, hopefully this weekend too as well. And we'll see what else comes up here. I know I'm going to be checking what's happening in Canada um, um, all throughout the show. Anyways, 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 onwards, onwards. For more PA-based progressive talk, tune into the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern on his YouTube channel, Twitter, Facebook, Twitch, Twitch. I keep on forgetting to mention Twitch. Um, he's broadcasting every night, right? Um, this thing is now picked up. Um, it, it's being broadcast on Free Speech TV every night. Um, they've got a live call-in number, so you kind of tune into the show. You can call in live. I was listening to the show again uh, this morning, and like there are people calling in from Minneapolis, from across the country. It was great. 
Um, so head on over to the ricksmithshow.com and check out for the latest across all his platforms and show Rick some love and give him support. Right? Being, being the show that was born right here in Pennsylvania. Gotta love it. And it's official. Season 2 of the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast is flooding the streams. You can find it on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. The amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast rock the house. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And attention gamers, the Game Inn, that's with two N's. The Game Inn is a Quakertown-based, black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything from retro N64s, the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops. And kids get discounts when they do well on the report card. How about that? Check them out on their Facebook page and follow them on Twitter and at the Gaming. That's at the Gaming on Twitter. And if you've got a question about a game, look for something hard to get, just kind of shoot them an email at thegaminpa at gmail.com. And a special shout-out goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at at Song of Day Man. That's with two N's. That's at Song of Day Man on Twitter. And this coming Monday, uh, we are back with our guests on Out to Coop Live. This coming Monday, February 14th. Yes, I know, Valentine's Day. Can you believe it? Um, we're gonna, we welcome Pennsylvania Capital Star House reporter Stephen Caruso to the show. He joins me to help make sense of the new PA maps, the emerging election chaos from GOP attempts to change the voting processes before the May 17th PA primaries. Um, we're going to be live at a special time. It's going to be at 1 p.m., Right. Um, there's still even a possibility, a slight possibility. I think it's a long shot. But we might even have two shows on Monday, um, but I'll get back to it. But we're going to be broadcasting live with Stephen Caruso uh, from Pennsylvania Capital Star at 1 p.m. on Monday. And look, this is a I want to give a special shout out to one of our Twitter warriors, uh, Starry Eyed uh, JGC. Um, she tweeted out this week that she lost, uh, they lost their dog Juno this week. And I just want to let you know that we're thinking about you and sending love your way this week. Um, I know how, um, devastating that loss can be. So, um, my heart goes out to you. Um, thank you for all your work and I hope you're, uh, you're doing okay. And look, if we want a progressive future, we need progressive media. Support Pull No Punches, homegrown progressive media today. That's right. Simply go to patreon.com slash rcpress and you can become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. We're here for the fight, right? We need this, but we need you. Become a patron for the price of a good beer once a month. Help keep the media in the movement, the movement, the media. Become a patron of Raging Chicken for as little as $5 a month by going to patreon.com slash rcpress today. Well, uh, everybody, uh, welcome to the show. Um, I am here solo again today. Um, we're kind of, uh, making this transition, um, from, you know, uh, we were at a point where it was just me and Sean for the longest time or Sean and I, excuse me, for the longest time. And, uh, Sean's run into those work conflicts. So, um, I mean, anytime we can get him on, if he wants to join the show, um, we're gonna try to get him back on and stuff like this. But in the meantime, I'm still kind of thinking about kind of, you know, doing that, uh, taking an opportunity to kind of assess how to kind of move forward and what are the things that, um, that we can do here. Um, I can share with you uh, one of the things that um, we're certainly going to be doing is we're going to have a much stronger, say, Bucks County focus, uh, especially in the PA um, section of our Friday show. Um, and that's kind of twofold. I mean, I've been thinking about this um, a couple times. You know, we had Amy Connect on last week. I thought that was freaking awesome. And I want to have her back on on the Friday show kind of more often. 
I also want to start reaching out to some additional, um, you know, say guest co-hosts for the Friday show who could come on also from Bucks talking about it. And the, the reason for it is, you know, I mean, you know, look, I'll, for, I'll totally admit, I mean, there's a kind of like a self-interest factor here in part, right? Because I'm living here in Bucks County and, but that alone doesn't do it, right? It's the fact that one, we've got one of the most important congressional um, races that it's happening here, the PA first, right? Um, the race against Brian Fitzpatrick. Um, this as the, and in the county at a time when you have, as we talked about on the show last week, you've got folks like um, Andy Meehan's Right for Bucks uh, kind of organizing kind of, you know, the um, the kind of the right-wing troops, Right. Um, to uh, kind of take over the Pennsylvania or the, the Bucks County Republican Party and um, move it further towards the Trump agenda um, and the rise of kind of the, you know, the return, we should even say, of more white supremacist militias in the area. We've seen the school board craziness that has taken off um, in Bucks County, especially upper Bucks, but down lower Bucks, too, as well. Um, so th this county is a contested county and a, a one that is, you know, simmering <laughs> with political conflict um, right now. And what happens here is going to matter. Right. So that's kind of my thinking here. And also the you know, the idea is that, look, there's a lot of amazing organizers who have been working on the school boards, who have been. Um, you know, trying to find ways to contribute and bring people together. And I think, look, you know, I think Raging Chicken, we should be doing our part by helping bring together at least a progressive media community um, that can kind of work in support of what um, the organizer, the organizing that is happening on the ground, whether it's in school district, whether it's for um, kind of municipal elections, whether it is there. And I think that we're going to have to have much more of that focus on the kind of the, the you know, local organizing and local power um, as we build out our base. And I think this is a critical moment. So we're doing that. I have some other things kind of in the works um, that I've got to follow up on um, that uh, something that I was planning to do last fall, but uh, you know, just look, frankly, I just, I, I ran out of steam. So I might try to reboot some of this stuff just as another way that we can at Raging Chicken uh, help, you know, keep an eye on what is happening in the school boards and kind of local races, especially as we, we move forward into the midterm elections. So more on that in the days to come, but, uh, you know, so here I am, it's Friday and it's just me. <laughs> well, it's not just me, it's just me and it's you, right? I mean, that's the, um, that's the part, that's the only reason I keep on coming back and doing it, even when it's just me, um, because you get to see what, uh, what people are thinking and so on. If you got your thoughts during the show, please, uh, just kind of drop them in the chat. Um, we have uh, folks in here. Um, good morning, Amy. I just saw the good morning. I had my uh, chat covered up by a window there. My apologies. Um, so here. But so uh, just got a couple of items from the news that are just here. We're seeing, obviously, we don't know what's going to happen in Russia, but that's getting a lot of attention right now. Um, we're seeing some renewed attention from the national media on uh, wanting to kind of turn to, you know, one of those tried and true international conflict reporting stories. Um, because they know how to do that, right? They can get back in their vein or back in their lane and just kind of like, uh, you know, click on the autopilot and get ready to do war reporting. Um, I mean, it's a complicated situation. Russia keeps on, um, you know, ramping up 
So all the, they're making all of the public claims that they're not planning on invading Ukraine. Um, but, you know, and you've got these these folks within NATO and the United States kind of wanting to say this looks like it's going to be an invasion. So there's this kind of increase of tension. Um, Russia is doing joint exercises uh, with Belarus and I forget the other I'm sorry, um, Belarus and uh, like right on the border of Ukraine kind of and people are reading that as, oh, look, if they attack, they're going to attack from multiple directions. So this is going to be more. And now you've got Ukrainian troops that are doing exercises. So it's one of those things where something could easily go wrong and lead to a conflict, even if people don't, quote unquote, intend to do things. So we're obviously got to be watching that. Um, the thing, the thing that I've been really like focused a lot on, um, is what's happening in Canada, right? Um, the, uh, you know, it, it's funny. I started saying this, uh, let me just see this just for a quick second. I just thought I saw a new update come by. No. No, that's another one. Okay. Sorry. I just, before I was talking about it, I did want to kind of say something that was outdated. So you have this like freedom convoy, right? That is happening up in Canada. And that's what they're calling it. They're calling it a freedom convoy, uh, convoy. But, you know, what it is, it is the, uh, you know, it is Canada's version of the kind of alt-right and the extremists, kind of the far right, basically showing their willingness to go to extremes in order to kind of like, not wear a mask, right? So they've, they've made a determination that, you know, wearing a mask to protect, you know, forget, they don't want to protect themselves, that's fine. But just to kind of do your part as a community to kind of um, protect other people, that that's too much for them, right? That's too disruptive to their lives, right? Their, their, their snowflake selves are going to melt too fast. So they've got to make sure that they're going to, you know, kind of, they can't, they, they can't, their, their, their skin is so delicate that wearing the mask is just going to, it's going to completely disrupt them. It's too much, right? So they're going to take their trucks and they're not just, it's not just truckers, but it's also, you know, that's the, who led, led the charge, um, take their trucks to Ottawa and shut everything down and completely shut down everybody else's thing. So they're, they're protesting the lockdown with a lockdown, which is kind of interesting. Good morning, Nick. Yes, snow. It is snowing big time <laughs> up there in Canada. You know, all the snowflakes coming down. Now, I should also say and make 100% clear, because the media is not always good in doing this, is that when we say a trucker protest, let's be clear here. 90% of Canadian truckers are vaccinated, right? The Teamsters have even come out basically saying, we don't support this, right? This does not represent our views, right? Canadians have a much higher rate of um, uh, unionization among truckers um, than the United States, because in the United States, we decided, oh, it'd be a great idea to break that, um, to break unionization in, on trucker by deregulating the entire industry and kind of privatizing and, you know, allowing for independent contractor works and all that kind of stuff, right? So anyways, um, so the unions come out and said, look, we're, we're not supporting this, right? So you're talking about a, a small number, rep, a small representative number of uh, Canadian truckers are really at the core of this. And we've seen money start to flood in, right, from kind of really kind of deep-pocketed kind of right-wing 
like billionaires and stuff from not just Canada, but across the U.S. and across the country. We see Fox News is treating this like, you know, it, it's the kind of like uh, the beginning of uh, it's the beginning of the apocalypse. Right. Or like in, in, they see that, of course, in a good way, see the beginning of this kind of massive uprising. And it also came out that, um, you know, the leader, like one of the leaders of this, quote unquote, freedom convoy, right, is a freaking racist. <laughs> like, I mean, like he's got like a little show. He does like social media stuff he does. And he's talking about like the Jewish conspiracy. And he's talking about, you know, maybe we should just kind of like reread Hitler because we was misunderstood. Like crap like this is kind of coming out of this guy's mouth. Right. So it's become very, very clear Right. That um, what is happening in Canada is very much like like the Tea Party was in the United States. Right. Is that you had some people, you had a, you had a, a group of look, you have a broad base of a population that is frustrated with the way things are. Right. So I think it would be fair to say that before the Tea Party came out in 2010, a lot of people were frustrated with the fact that, you know, the United States had pursued about 30 years, 40 years of policies that have um, privatized, um, you know, privatized uh, um, kind of public services, have allowed for corporations to kind of shut things down and move all the production overseas, right, that were got behind, um, you know, like brutal policing, all this kind of stuff that you can say, you know, people were frustrated with the way things were, right? They were able to, you know, their parents and grandparents, maybe even, um, were telling them stories, some of them at least, right? Especially white folks were telling them stories about the good old days. You know, we could, you know, one family could, uh, one member of a family could actually go out and have a good union job and have benefits and support an entire family on a particular mode of life, right? Of course, we know that's, that's always racialized, Right. Because that was certainly not the case if you were African-American, if you were Chinese-American, if you were like um, uh, Mexican-American. Right. But for in terms of the mythos of what was going on and actually, you know, the kind of the distribution of income across across the country was kind of centered in the middle class, in part because you had strong unions. Right. So. So, yeah. Um, so we've got that. So these folks are. um they they were generally concerned, right? You know, I think they had their experience. They were finding they weren't able to make ends meet and things like this. And so you have that kind of broad-based concern about something. And then you have one particular group that says, we're going to push back on this, right? And initially for a very flash of the pan moment, right? It represents, you know, it gets, it gets a little steam behind it because people are like, yeah, I'm upset too as well. And I remember this distinctly when I, when the Tea Party first started having meetings in Kutztown. I remember some of my students kind of getting interested in it because they saw this kind of like neoliberal globalization as problematic. So they wanted to go and they wanted to join up with this, right? It took them about two meetings to realize that like, oh, this is not what I thought it was, right? And then the money started flooding in from all these right-wing groups, right? All the kind of dark money started flooding into these Tea Party stuff and, and basically became this kind of, you know, astroturfed organization that utilized people's anger at below, exacerbated racial tension, turned it into this anti-government, right? Anti, you know, uh, anti-social program, like pro-free market kind of like nonsense, right? And use them as tools, right? Very much in the same way that we see what's happening now. This what's happening in Canada, right, is the same deal, right? It's that we have exported in the United States, we have exported a model of right wing organizing to other countries, right? Um, and to give it the veneer 
of kind of like working class everyday people mobilization. This is represents kind of workers, a pro worker thing when they're actually arguing for everything against what workers have been fighting for the long time, such as like safety on the job. Yeah, the majority of these 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 truckers who are going across kind of, you know, are protesting, having to get a vaccine to be able to kind of take their goods across international borders. Right. Because, as Nick says, because it's, you know. They'll melt the poor little snowflakes. They have to get that vaccine. Right. Their protest is kind of like, you know. They're not the, the, the majority of union, uh, you know, union truckers who are actually fighting for work, you know, safe workplace regulations. Right. Want to make sure that, look, yeah, I don't want to have to have to be forced to choose between getting um, covid and my job. No, I've got a union contract, my union contracts to make sure that, no, there's going to be safety protocols. Right. There's going to be safety protocols. So I'm not going to be forced as an individual right, to put myself in an unsafe situation. Right. Just the way we want to make sure these trucks are inspected to make sure that and when they're broken, they get fixed. That's that a driver is not forced into a situation in which they're going to have to you know, choose between their job and, you know, risking driving an unsafe truck. Same way here. Right. This is kind of workplace safety kind of stuff. Right. And beyond the workplace, it's also a community safety thing. Right. Because if you have. People that are going across borders, right, especially if you're your Canadian trucker going into the United States where we've lost our minds over here when it comes to comes to COVID. And then you want to make sure that, look, you're going to do your best. Right? You're not going to be perfect on it, but you're going to do your best to make sure that you've got folks that are going to be protected and they're not going to be kind of unnecessarily, you know, dying or spreading the virus to um, other folks in Canada. Right. Just kind of basic common sense stuff. What we what should have been. Whatever. Should have been what we've done here, but we shall see. So, um, so that's what we got. So, you know, and what's happened now is they've started blocking these. It's what started as this kind of lockdown. It's like two week lockdown in in Ottawa, where they've just uh, crowded this. The you know, Ottawa is the capital of Canada. They've crowded the center of um, Ottawa and just parked their their rigs there, shut everything down, and it's become increasingly tense. Um, but now this has expanded to actually shutting down international bridges, bridges between the United States and Canada. Um, one of the critical ones, which was between, um, it's the, I think, I don't know if it's called the Windsor Bridge, but it's the one that basically goes to Windsor, Canada, um, to Detroit. And um, that that is a, a, I mean, look, those two regions, Detroit and Windsor, are kind of like one economic unit, right? I mean, there's travel back and forth there all the time. People, you know, work in Canada, live in the United States, and vice versa. People will... Uh, um, parts are going back and forth. Production happens in Canada. Production happens in the U.S. And then it goes, you know, switches over. Um, but a lot of automakers have had to stop production because they get some of their parts from Canada. And these truckers have shut everything down. Um, the Freedom Convoy has shut everything down. And um, they can't get parts, so they can't produce the cars, right? So it's having a, an impact on our supply lines already. So we already have these kind of, the problems with our su supply lines that's in that's kind of influencing the rates of inflation and now we're going to have it, another bottleneck on the supply lines because of these folks right so when you start putting in that picture you realize okay this is going to have a big impact yes it's kind of like you know all the rage right wing nonsense fox news and you know one america news network Alex Jones conspiracy nonsense is kind of motivating a lot of fight you know fueling the flames behind all this 
But on the other hand, it's also going to have an impact that's going to contribute to the very thing that you also have other sectors of the right, the kind of more, quote unquote, like non-QAnon Republicans, right, who are basically saying inflation is the worst thing in the world. Well, just that's pretty convenient that this is going to contribute to that problem, too, right? Not agree. And won't that be something if we do get, as I suggested at the top of the show, if that um, the Super Bowl is indeed disrupted by the Freedom Convoy that is supposed to go from California to Washington, D.C. Um, so this weekend is going to be a tipping point even here in the United States to see what happens. If we're going to see these kind of, uh, you know, kind of right wing trucker protests um, start happening in the United States. So we shall see. So. I'm just following. I mean, I'm looking at, you know, there's a New York Times has got uh, an up to date live updates from here. Let me see if there's anything else has come through. Uh, I swear, because it's been I was yesterday here. Uh, oh, here it is. What did I say? Ont- Ontario Premier declares a state of emergency as authorities brace for more protest. Ontario official officials are turning to the courts to help remove protesters and thwart the spread of the demonstrations, which have partly shut down a major trade route between the United States and Canada. Um I'll just read part of this is just broke. Doug Ford, the premier of Ontario, declared a state of emergency for the entire province on Friday as the police in Ottawa braced for thousands of protesters to descend uh, for the third consecutive weekend of a crisis that has disrupted international supply chains. Quote, with a protest, you make your point and you go back home. I know that's what the vast majority did, unquote, Mr. Ford said at a news conference. Quote, my message to those still in Ottawa, those still in our border crossing, to those who brought their children, please take them home and it's time to do so peacefully. Otherwise, quote, there will be consequences and they will be severe, he, he said, adding, quote, your right to make a political statement does not outweigh the right of thousands of workers to make a living. And it goes on. Now, Oh, I should read this here, too. This is also here. Hundreds of miles away along the border with the United States, Mayor Drew Dilkins uh, of Windsor, Ontario, sought a court order to let him remove protesters from the Ambassador Bridge, which carries roughly one third, a third of U.S.-Canada trade. The hearing was set for noon on Friday. So this kind of goes on. This is like just broke in the New York Times. Um, so I got to say, there's there's a couple things that work here is that I'm, you got these protests that are taking place that you you have this calls now to remove them. And I'm pretty uncomfortable with start talking about needing to kind of like send in troops to kind of remove protesters. That's uh, that's a little problematic. Right. Um, especially because we don't especially in this country, we don't seem to be able to make a distinction between um, the kinds of protest, because in this country, if we start making a precedent for stuff like this, the next time that we have a civil rights protest, the next election where there's kind of voting rights protests, guess what's going to happen? They're going to use the same logic because you, because they don't make any distinctions to do this. So this is going to be um, interesting. This is going to be an interesting um, development. So I'm sorry to spend so much time on this, but I've just been it's been really uh, it's been really front and center in how I've been looking at some things because it's uh, it's really important. And like you said, it started in Ottawa, right? Funding started to come in from U.S. kind of right-wing sources and billionaires from all over the place, so these right-wing folks. And now it's starting to spread to other things using that kind of copycat, right? They're kind of exporting a model. And I, I got to say, you know, I just finished um, – this book called Bring the War Home, right? Ka- um, Catherine um, Bellew, I think is how you pronounce her name. 
her book, Bring the War Home, and it's on the kind of rise of the white power movement uh, from about, you know, late, kind of the 60s through the 90s. And uh, one of the things that this book is so good about doing is it 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 shows you how there's this model of um, decentralized leaders. They call it leadership or a leaderless kind of resistance, right, which is the cell-based organizing, which you see in kind of guerrilla organizations and so on. And that really became the hallmark of white power organizing. Um, the, the, the extension of this, and she, she makes kind of alludes to this or points in this direction at the end of the book, where she's really pointing to the fact that, look, this organizing model has done a few things. Number one, it, is, it has um, uh, allowed the organizing efforts to evade media scrutiny because we don't know how to look at things systemically in this country. So our reporters, for the most part, this is, again, I don't, I don't want to cast too far of a blanket, um, but generally are looking at things in terms of individual events, individuals, and kind of what's happening. The kind of deep investigative reporting and the kind of the narrative, you know, the narrative of history, right? The, the narrative of the system, the narrative that allows us to see systems and not just individuals, um, that we're pretty weak on in this country, right? When it comes to the dominant forms of uh, reporting. And so as a result, we take someone like Timothy McVeigh and we just see this as, you know, the lone gunman. So, you know, the lone bomber in that case, the Oklahoma City bomber. Um, but we don't see the network and what kind of made that happen. And she does a great job of uncovering all these networks that the FBI, for example, just completely ignored. Right. And the media completely ignored. Everyone was kind of quick, just wanted to kind of make sure that we just saw this was this one individual. The point that she alludes to towards the end of the book is kind of what we're seeing here, right? Those that culture of organizing this leader, this leaderless, you know, resistance, right? Think that you have these cell-based stuff. This happens that you don't have one central leader that tells everybody else to do. You have an ideology, right? A set of binding practices, right? Sets of training that takes place, and then people start taking individual action. So it doesn't take a ton of people in order to get something started. But once something started, it's kind of like it kind of reverber like reverberates through the network. They're like, ah, look, they're doing this thing. I recognize this is the kind of resistance that is being called for in all my little militia meetings. So, hey, let's do that too, right? And now you see this stuff starting to pop up all over the place, right? And they've already got the ideological base, the practical base, and the organizational base kind of drilled into them from these kind of, you know, whatever, half a century of kind of white power movement stuff. Right. And yes, I know people will say not everybody there is part of the white power movement. Okay. Granted, <laughs> not everybody is. Okay. What, what does that do to the argument? Nothing. Like the fact is, is the organ, what motivates the organizing here is the kind of the history of white supremacy and white supremacist organizing um, kind of in the United States and kind of beyond with that the right wing has embraced. Right. And that's just that's just the way it is, right? And so this is why, you know, when Amy and I were talking last week about, you know, what we look like for progressive organizing, really need to be thinking about organizing on the local level, right? Building out our structures and infrastructure at a local level and carrying it out is so important, right? Because, you know, look, there is no white knight that's going to save us, right? And the organizing has to happen, has to be deep organizing, right? That we start kind of working kind of together and start thinking about what is it that we want, Right. And how do we achieve that? How do we kind of accomplish that goal? And what are we willing to risk for it? This is what, you know, the right wing right now is in this place where they're willing to risk it all. Right. These people, these truckers out there are kind of like, you know, 
there okay you're blocking an international bridge can you imagine if a bunch of leftists went out and blocked the international bridges for several days what would have happened just play that out in your mind and you already have the conclusion so we shall see we shall see what happens for the super bowl so um and as we know now you've got all the quote unquote blue state governors are now kind of rushing to stop uh stop the uh you know covid restrictions um, even though those restrictions are minimal at best in most of these places, um, just kind of like every, everybody, like you know, from you know uh, New Jersey and New York and uh, a bunch of other like, Democratic states, oh, yeah, we're going to shut it down. So suddenly, all this these calls to like you know follow the scientists, right? Believe the scientists, right? Listen to the scientists. They're just like, nope, sorry, we're gone, we're out of here, we're not going to do this. And um, you know, I mean. Being in Bucks County, anybody else who's listening is from Bucks County, you know as well as I do that uh, we've been living with the lack of restrictions here. Like, I mean, our kids are being forced to go to school in with no COVID protocols. We just saw that, like, uh, I think it was Central Bucks uh, basically said, hey, we're no longer going to alert people to positive cases. Yeah, we'll still report them to the county. All right, whatever. All the reporting comes out. I think Chris Ullery had an uh, article on this about how Bucks County, seemed, Bucks County schools seem to be underreporting cases already. Right. And, you know, there we go. We're, we've decided somehow, and I use we advisedly here, we decided that, you know, we're done. Right. Um, there is a, um, a really important article, um, important. A really, I think, interesting article um, in the Washington Post that really kind of brought this all home for me this week. Um, And it's written by Jess McHugh. And uh, she says, I want to read just a couple of paragraphs for you because I think it's this kind of tells you where she's at. She said, in New York City in 1920, nearly two years into a deadly influenza pandemic um, that would claim nearly 50 million lives worldwide, the new year began on a bright note. Quote, the best health report for the city in 53 years, unquote, boasted a headline in the New York Times on January 4th, 1920, after New York had survived three devastating waves of the flu virus. The nation as a whole, which would ultimately lose 675,000 people to the disease, believed that the end might finally be in sight. Within weeks, however, these optimistic headlines began to change. Before the end of the month, New York City would experience a surge in influenza cases. Chicago and other urban centers reported the same. Residents um, should prepare themselves for an influenza return, New York City Health Commissioner Royal Copeland warned. He predicted the virus variant responsible for the surge would be milder than that those that would have fallen ill from the previous year would be immune. He was wrong, at least in part. While many places worldwide did not see a fourth wave of the great influenza pandemic, several metropolises, including New York City, Chicago, and Detroit, had another deadly season in store. The 1918 flu lasted beyond 1918, despite what we would like to think. Two years after it began, just as officials such as Copeland were declaring victory and cities were easing restrictions, a fourth wave hit parts of the country, bringing punishing caseloads that pushed some hospitals to the brink of collapse and left many more Americans dead. The virus did did not seem so menacing when it began. The first wave in the spring of 1918 was relatively mild, but it returned with a vengeance in the fall, probably having mutated. That second wave burned through patients around the world and streetcars were converted into hearse and so on. 
During the second wave alone, more Americans were killed by the flu than died in the First World War, the Second World War, the Korean War, and Vietnam combined. Right? And it continues. And she walks through this, and she says, look, you know, in the third year of the pandemic, after the third wave, uh, the Spanish flu pandemic, um, 1918 through 1921, I guess, people got to the same point, right? People got to the point where they were just like, okay, we're done with this. Like, I, I can't stand this anymore, right? I want to get on with my life. And uh, you had some positive notes coming out from health officials that were saying, hey, looks, looks like cases are declining, right? So let's get out there. And they threw away the masks, they threw away the precautions, they kind of went out, and then boom, you got another wave of people getting, uh, lots of people dying. And so the Spanish flu, 675,000 people dead. We're already past 900,000 people dead, right? And uh, we're still in the winter, as we know, and people are still dying right now. Lots of people that are still unvaccinated and refuse to, as we've just been talking about. And we're just going to lift all restrictions. So here we go. <laughs> here we go. Now, I like to think that, okay, yeah, things are going to be sunny and it's not going to happen this time. But, you know, I'm always reminded, people love to say, you got to learn history, right? Those who refuse to learn history, like, are doomed to repeat it, right? We say these slogans in schools and everything like this. But when it comes down to it, when it comes to actually enacting that in the world, you realize like how many people have said that have just, it just been a slogan, right? Just something that sounded good at the time that allowed them to feel self-righteous over somebody else. Cause when it came down to it, nope, <laughs> nope. So that's pretty crazy. We shall see. And this is, you know, happening too, as well. There's this, uh, that, that, you know, the Omicron subvariant. um, is now dominant in South Africa. Um, again, they're saying it's it's you know it's not more deadly or something, but it is more contagious. They're saying it's mild, but it's mild in, in relative to what? Um, Got to remember that you know we, the Delta variant was considered the most deadly thus far, but it wasn't quite as contagious, right? So now we're measuring everything against that Delta var- variant in terms of deadliness, and we're forgetting entirely about the original one. Right. When you start comparing the original, uh, you, you know, the wild virus or whatever, the original kind of coronavirus outbreak to um, Omicron, you find out actually they're kind of comparable. Right. Delta was the outlier. Right. But now we're measuring everything against Delta saying, oh, look, things are better. But more people have died in this year than did in the original year. <laughs> right. Before the vaccines even. Right. Because you have more deadly and more contagious variants. So more people get it, more people die. And somehow we've decided that that's who we are as a nation. That's who we are as a people. And again, I'm using we advisedly here because I know like you, who are probably listening to this show and me, we've been doing our best to try to kind of make sure that we're like not contrib- not being part of the problem, that we're being part of a solution, but whatever. Uh, God, God, God. What else is going to say? Oh, yeah. And then the one best of, <laughs> I was like, like, so sad. It's like koalas have now been put on the endangered species list, right? Um, the environmental minister in Australia basically, you know, basically saying, yeah, look, we had all this drought. There were all these fires that ran through uh, um, um, Australia. You know, why do we have all those fires? Say it with me. Climate change. Right. So we have more fires, more brutal weather impacts, longer droughts. 
Um, then you've got disease that has gone through. You have urbanization. You kind of the, the land has been taking back. Um, development of, of the habit or taking over the habitats, destroying of habitats, and now the koalas are on the endangered species list, right? So at least the one the positive thing here is they're not on the the you know going to be extinct tomorrow list, which is good. Um, so this is actually going to enable um, uh, Australian. Um, agencies basically to protect areas and protect some of the habitats um, for the koalas, which is a good thing. But man, you know, it's like, we just don't learn, do we? Do we? No. Crazy. Oh, yeah. Um, before I go to break, uh, Amy writes in, say, speaking about veneers, uh, say a website called Woke PA is misleading, um, is a misleading front for pro-white supremacist site, um, class bait and switch. Yes, exactly. Um, <clears throat> people may have seen this, may have seen this come up. It's a place called woke PA. It's basically a snitch site, right? It's looking for, um, uh, we're trying to get people to kind of like, you know, basically tell on teachers and tell on kind of like communists, right? <laughs> whatever. You know, it's like a Neo McCarthy, uh, kind of snitch line. Um, so they're out there. Um, and also, um, <clears throat> want to give a special shout out to uh, Andy Meehan, which we know is a big fan of the show. Um, and he is uh, nick- nicknamed as, uh, you know, the communist uh, or the Bucks County Pravda. So uh, how about that? We got uh, Andy Meehan uh, sitting there kicking in the uh, the nicknames. You got to love that. Right. Uh, so apparently he really loved our uh, our show on uh, on the right for Bucks and right wing organizing in here. So, uh, you know, he's he's become a fan of the show. Insert sarcastic look here. Um, so here. Anyways, we're going to take a quick break. Um, and after the break, we're going to come back, talk a little bit what's happening in Pennsylvania and prep you a little bit for the uh, our show on Monday uh, with Stephen Caruso from the uh, Pennsylvania. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, from the um, Pennsylvania Capital Times. I'm sorry. I was choking a little bit there. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about that and some other stuff happening here in Bucks County. Um, but we're going to take a quick break. I want to remind you, you can help support the show. Um, if you're on YouTube right now, make sure you hit that like button. Make sure you subscribe to the show. Share it with your friends. And if you are listening to this on iTunes or Apple I, uh, Apple Podcasts, make sure you give us that five-star review that really helps people find the show. All right. This is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. We'll be right back after this quick break. Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. Did you work a 40-hour work week this week? If you did, this is an important day for you. On this day in labor history, the year was 1926. And on this day, labor leader Benjamin Gold began what became a general strike of all furriers in New York City. Benjamin Gold was born in Russia and immigrated with his family to the United States when he was 12 years old. He worked at several jobs before entering work in the fur industry. He became active in the Furrier Union at only 14 years old. In 1926, Gold helped lead some 12,000 workers, including Jewish, Greek, and African-American furriers, on strike. One of their core demands was a 40-hour work week. Despite numerous acts of police brutality against the workers, constant red baiting, and dwindling strike funds, the workers held strong. 
Ben Gold helped raise money for the strikers, visiting other union halls throughout the city to sell 40-hour Liberty Bonds. He helped get the New York State Federation of Labor and other unions in the city to support the cause. He argued that the 40-hour work week was important for all workers in New York and across the nation. With this support, Gold organized a rally at Madison Square Garden. The labor supporters filled the garden, making it the largest labor meeting in New York up to that time. After 17 long weeks, the Furriers were successful, winning their first contract that recognized a 40-hour, five-day work week. They also won a 25% pay increase, union inspection of shops, an employer contribution to an unemployment insurance fund, a paid day off, and equal assignments of work without favoritism. These brave workers helped to set the standard for the work week of today. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. Welcome back. Welcome back. This is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken, uh, here for our Friday Politics Roundup. You know, I just realized just now, I have no idea why I didn't see this. There's, I guess this is where my head's been at. Um, but I actually have, if you're watching the show right now, you know that you're looking at, wait a minute, this is the Friday show, which it says out to coop live and open phones and stuff. I just, uh, you know, I'm on my little, my, my, the wrong OBS overlay <laughs> my show, but whatever, we're here now. So that's where we're going to stay. Um, anyways, uh, some news in the PA this week. Uh, this year's election is, is, is proving, is going to be, it's going to get wild. Let me just put it that way. It's going to get wild, not in a good way. Um, and not necessarily just because of the candidates, but because of what is happening with the redistricting. What is happening with um, attempts by the Pennsylvania Republicans to um, change voting laws? There's already this, uh, you know, the Republicans voted to overturn Act 77, which basically allowed for mail-in balloting. Um, Governor Wolf is going to, you know, veto it. It's going to be, and there's going to be contestations. There's going to be uh, court challenges with a whole bunch of stuff. So this is the primary. Like I said, is May 17th. And we're compressing time, right? And that is part of the game plan for the Pennsylvania Republicans right now. They're going to try to compress time as much as possible to make things as chaotic as possible because we know that when you make it difficult for people or you raise doubts in people's minds that they disengage, right? We've, we've talked about this in the show for years now, right? That when you cannot win the argument on its merits, what you do is you attempt to kind of raise doubt among people because doubt breeds disengagement, right? So that's kind of part of what's going on or chaos. Because, oh, this is too crazy. I'm not going to get involved, right? I'm going to stay home. Or I don't know. Am I able to vote? Or wait, did I miss a deadline? Or wait, is it here? Uh, I don't I'll probably, you know what? I, I don't know. So I probably don't. I want to be embarrassed by showing up under the polls and find out that I'm not on the, I'm on the list. So I, I'm just going to stay home. Right. So part of our work is going to be part of the organizing work on the ground is going to be that kind of stuff, registering voters and so on. I know that there's a um, there's a um, uh, a phone banking tomorrow uh, here in Bucks County in the Penridge District, um, kind of looking to kind of make sure people are getting registered. I know that's going to be happening throughout the county and throughout the state. Um, 
But, you know, these kind of court cases, these kinds of like indecisions, reportings about kind of problems with the voting, um, ideologically, they, they, they cause problems. So because the PA Supreme Court basically, um, like I said, put that hold on kind of petition gathering, which is um, just going to delay the process. You got to say there was a, um, a great quote in um, I want to I want to say it was in the AP article on this where uh, they interviewed also Summer Lee and Summer Lee's like, well, look. We've already got our organization built, right? Um, yes, this is uh, we're anxious to get to, to get moving, but you know you got to know what your district looks like. Um, and so, if you're running in a particular district, um, it matters. Like I, I now look, I'm really bad at reading these congressional maps, um, and which is one of the reasons why we're having Stephen Caruso on from the Pennsylvania Capital Times on, on Monday to help us sort some of this stuff out because. Um, my district, right, right now it's the 143rd, I believe, um, in, and for the state house, right, is, is, is good, is going to change. Um, and it's going to change in such a way that if, if I read the, the map correctly, um, the district used to be from just south of kind of where I'm at, then northward. Right. And now it's going to be just my town and south of me. <laughs> right. And so um, Perkesy used to be part of the uh, Quakertown and part of the voting district. And it looked like if, if I read the maps correctly, it looks like now Perkesy and Quakertown are going to be in different districts. Right. So little things like that. And that's just a state house that what Summer Lee's talking about, of course, is the um, you know congressional elections. And because her area is going to is is going to change, as is most other people's areas, except Brian Fitzpatrick, conveniently. Um, so what, what's going to happen to that district? Um, so they have to know ahead of time before they can gather signatures, which is why, you know, Supreme court put a stay on it. Basically, look, you gotta, you gotta hold off on gathering signatures because it could just cause further mess. And I think, look, it's, it's a smart move on the part of the Supreme court to do this because you could imagine a situation in which, it, you know, I, I, you play out the scenario. So, so say you start gathering signatures, right? Start gathering signatures because you have an idea about where your district is going to be. Now, let's say there's district lines change, right? Um, and maybe let's say that let's just pick a small number. Twenty-five of the signatures that you gathered were actually kind of in a different in the based upon the new lines or in a different district, right? So you got to go for you got to get rid of those things. You got to find them out. You got to get rid of them. Now, if you're kind of one of these, you know, anti-voting Republicans that have been looking to kind of suppress the vote for so long. Basically, what you're going to do then is you're going to challenge all the signatures, right? You're going to kind of make legal cases and challenge all the signatures saying that you gather them in the wrong districts and that you're kind of padding your numbers because you're using stuff from your former district. That's how they would do it, right? And they say, because now there's going to be duplicate signatures and all this other kinds of stuff. And we just, again, raise the question, raise the doubt, raise the cost um, for that. But by putting a hold on it, right, they're going to settle the case, they're going to settle the lines and then go forward. So even though it's causing some stress and it's 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 frustrating and cause some some kind of like reach like you know reach out problems um reach out problems outreach problems reach out problems that's weird um outreach problems with actually trying to get people organized it's it's going to i think it's going to be positive in the end as long as it gets done quickly so there's that going on. So we're going to talk uh, to Crusoe about that on Monday. Um, it's also interesting what's happening in the Lehigh Valley. Um, there were this has been a kind of ongoing local story for a while about, you know, 
the maps are being redrawn to make because, you know, basically you had Republicans who were in safe districts in Lehigh Valley and were not representing, um, you know, the, the kind of the, you know, one of the largest growing populations and areas in the in the Commonwealth and um, really strong concentrations of Latino populations, African-American um, populations, um, all sorts of stuff like this. And so you have these districts that were drawn to kind of protect the white guys right um, in that district. So the new districts are going to be drawn, and, and and I shouldn't say just white guys, white Republicans. So districts are redrawn, right? And again, we'll, Caruso will give us the, the actual lowdown on this on Monday um, in such a way that it's actually going to be more, more representative in terms of party. However, the way that some of those districts were drawn before, they were guaranteed kind of, say, say Latino representation in kind of one district, right? Because they were overweighed. It's not overweighed. They were you could call it like a pack district, right? So you had like high percentage of voters in there were kind of Latinos who guarantee that they, they would get this job. Now, apparently some of that has been diluted. So instead of it being, you know, say, say instead of being 60% Latino, it might be say 52%. I'm just totally making up those numbers. I want to be clear, but there's that kind of um, question. And there's claims by some, this guy, Victor Martinez, um, he's the, uh, he's a Latino radio station owner in Lehigh Valley. Um, he says he might actually join with Republicans in order to file a lawsuit against maps that would dilute any of the Latino districts. So this is going to be part of the push and pull that we're going to see moving forward. Um, how do you balance kind of um, ethnic and racial um, representation with party representation in terms of uh, population representation? That's going to be interesting. So uh, we'll see. We'll see how that plays itself out. I hope to get somebody on from the um, Lehigh Valley to talk more about that too as well. I'd love, that's one of these things. I'd love to have a panel of some folks from Lehigh Valley um, to, to let us know what was going on up there because um, it's very easy to see some of the discussion in very kind of like black and white terms, like it's either Democrat, Republican, because that's how it tends to get framed in the media. Yet um, when you're talking about kind of urban areas or kind of growing areas, um, really diverse areas, uh, it can get more complicated in terms of what you're trying to do in terms of representation, right? So how do you kind of balance this stuff? And so we shall see what's happening up there. And we'll see like, you know, to what degree this is a legitimate concern, to what degree this is more of a Republican concern, to what degree so and so on. Okay, so let's talk a little about what's happening then Bucks again here. Um, though you might have seen this blow up on social media, uh, blow up on Twitter this week. Um, so there was supposed to be a field trip, right? There was supposed to be a field trip um, to Washington, D.C., uh, the uh, Tamanend, I think I got that right, Tamanend Middle School, ninth graders, were originally planning to go to Washington, D.C., and as part of that, they were going to go to the Holocaust Museum, right? Um, but that's not happening now. So uh, the school board um, just voted down um, that they just voted to cancel it. Okay. Why did they vote to cancel it? Well, part of what, uh, well, I'll just read this, right? So, um, Diana Lagerman, right. Who we've had on this show, right. She was a former school board member, um, our school board candidate in central bucks. Um, she's just freaking awesome in terms of, uh, well, just I'll just leave it at that. She's awesome. Um, she tweeted out, said like, okay, 
um, quote, say, our, son, our, our school board just canceled the field trip to D.C. where students were supposed to visit the Holocaust Museum because a school board member's kid isn't vaccinated. An important educational trip canceled because she made a choice but isn't willing to accept the consequences of that choice. Right. That was the key. Right. Then she goes on. Students were also supposed to visit the Smithsonian Museum and various uh, memorials and monuments all gone and canceled. Right. Um, so this why I read this to you is because it blew up right over, um, according to uh, the Bucks County Courier Times, over 90,000 people have viewed this post. It has been retweeted kind of let's see what we're at right now it's uh retweeted 900 times it's been uh liked 3507 times like that's just as of right this second right <clears throat> and it blew up and now it's kind of actually made its way into the usa today it kind of got picked up about the cancels eight cancellation of this trip because this also happens against the backdrop right of these kind of anti-semitic comments being made at school board meetings and the school board refuses to kind of like um, kind of condemn them, allows them just to kind of happen without any condemnation of them or saying that this is wrong. We should be talking about this happens in context where they're going after quote unquote critical race theory because they don't want any kind of like any white kids to feel shame. Right. And now you have uh, Lisa, I'm going to butcher her name, um, Schizios or Schizios. I don't know. She was one of the school board members. She raised objections in saying that because D.C. has strong uh, vaccination rules and COVID requirements, uh, COVID vaccination rules, that um, some of the kids um, might not be able to might not be able to go to some of them. What happens if they have to use the bathroom and they're not vaccinated? It's discrimination, I tell you. How can we do this? Right. How can we do this? We're going to be looking at the monument of MLK and our kids aren't going to be able to pee. Right. I mean. Like that, right? I mean, this is kind of what's going on. And really what was motivating it, right, is because they – what's more important to them is that they hold on to their anti-vax stuff. And look, I just had a conversation with somebody at, at, at Kutztown University like uh, this, this uh, just yesterday, I think. I said, look, you want to be – you know, where's the kind of the take responsibility for your actions crew, right? These are supposed to be the kind of like take responsibility for your actions up. Look, there's consequences for your actions, Right. If I even if I'm going to respect if I'm going to respect your ability, your kind of decision to say that you are not going to get vaccinated. Right. OK. But when you do that, then you need to take responsibility for that. What does that mean? That means because you know that you are more likely to contract it. Right. And have a severe case of that. Right. Then you need to take some extra precautions to make sure you don't infect other people. Number one. Right. But these people are also anti-mask. Remember, not just anti-vax, anti-mask. Open up. Forget all the protocols. They want their cake and they eat it, too. They want their virus and they want to eat it, too. So there you go. He's like, OK, you want you want you want whatever you your, your little freaking right wing heart desires. Right. And, and nobody's standing your way. Right. You're a freaking three year old in an adult body and you're teaching freaking kids and other people that it's okay to just kind of like, I want what I want. I don't want to go to bed. (laughs) You got to freaking sleep. You know, I mean, like whatever. So in this case, the vaccination stuff. Okay. Yes. Guess what? The world, and we've said this before multiple times in the show, right? The world is bigger than these little small towns in Bucks County. And the world is, you know, 
has a range of different ways of dealing with stuff. And there's, guess what? There's different kinds of people elsewhere, too. And in some places, like, they're not committed to freaking, like, paleo versions of culture, (laughs) right? No, they want to live in a freaking future that's, like, dominated by kind of, like, care and kind of, like, looking after each other and equity and things like this, where we're better, (laughs) right? That our goal isn't to go backwards, it's to go forwards, right? Anyways, so you want so okay, good. You don't want your kid to get vaccinated? Okay, that's fine. And so now they have a choice to make. Either they don't go on the field trip, number one, right? Number two, they go on the field trip, but they know that they're not going to be able to see a bunch of stuff because they're not going to be admitted into buildings without proof of vaccination, even though I have to say some of the some of the places that they chose to go to were known for not requiring vaccination by proof of vaccination status to go to. So that's just a little sidebar. But so just because of that, so they weren't going to change it. And one of them had the freaking audacity to come out and say, like, well, they would just go to Dorney Park. We'll just go to kind of go to the splash zone up at the Dorney Park and ride the roller coaster. Same thing, right? <laughs> I mean, listen to her cry. I mean, it's six in it's six in the morning till eight at night. I mean, there's kids who will have to use the restrooms. There's kids who may want to get something to eat. I have a ninth grader at Tamman, and, and I have a problem with this because my kid won't be able to pee because it's unvaccinated. Well, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. And of course, like you know, like you know, the right wing hit jobs are kind of out there already going after uh, Diana Lagerman already because of this. Right? She's like, look, I'm a I'm I'm a private citizen at this point. I can criticize whoever I want. It's my right to criticize the thing. I'm not representing the school board, right? I am kind of criticizing what my school board is doing, right? In a district that I live and work, right? So whatever. So this is a great story. I've reached out to Diana, too, as well. Uh, hopefully we're going to uh, be able to kind of get her back on the show soon, too, uh, to talk about some of this stuff, uh, what else is happening over there, because it's just freaking crazy. It really is. It really is. Um, <clears throat> crazy. So we shall see. We shall see. So I'll let you know. I'll keep you posted on that. Um, I know we're going to have to um, – she and I are going to have to touch base now um, that to see if we can work something out in terms of a time and things like this. So um, – so we shall see. We shall see when that's going to happen. Um, it might be an end of a really packed day on Monday. So we shall see. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Okay. Anyways, 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 I'm getting off here. So the other story, this is the other story that came across uh, my feed. Um, and I was just like, whoa, here you go. Um, so apparently there's this Bethlehem-based um, alt-right podcaster. All right. Um, and let me just pull this one up here. Where are we? Where are we? Where are we? Here we go. Because I want to. I don't want to kind of miss some of this stuff. I have limited things in my show notes, but I want to. Uh... Okay. So let me just kind of. I'm gonna. I. I just. I need you to hear this, right? Because this is kind of stuff that Cyril Michaleko has been. Um, has been pointing to and reporting on for a long time. Uh, we've got folks like Jordan Hopkins who's been reporting on the kind of um, the right wing um, based out of Philadelphia, and this was reporting here. He's also focused on some stuff in Bucks County. We've got some great folks up in the Lehigh County, uh, Lehigh Valley, who've been. Um, basically unmasking some of these kind of extremists and militia-based folks up there. So, I mean, lots of good stuff that's going on. 
Um, <clears throat> and here's an example of why this is so important. Um, so this is the Philadelphia Inquirer. So an alt-right podcaster from Lehigh County who prosecutors say um, once encouraged his listeners to assassinate lawmakers, lobbyists, and, quote, left-wing billionaires, unquote, with explosives, is facing federal charges for allegedly amassing a cache of more than a dozen unregistered machine guns. Prosecutors say that Joseph Paul Berger, 32, illegally modified many of the firearms found locked in the basement of his parents' Bethlehem home, turning them into fully automatic weapons capable of firing hundreds of rounds of ammunition at a time. At a court hearing on Thursday, they described him as an anti-government, anti-law enforcement, and, quote, an extreme danger to the community, unquote. Now, his lawyer obviously says, no, no, he's just making jokes, <laughs> right? He never incited violence. It's just a joke. It was a prank, he called it, right? Now, Berger is a Navy veteran who lives with his parents and works in a cert as a certified armorer and machinist. He has not been accused of any crimes yet or related to threats that made on his show. Instead, he and his father, Joseph Raymond Berger, were arrested earlier this week on charges stemming only from the weapons cache federal agents seized after raiding their houses in January 2021. Right. So this happened last year when that was seized. But this has happening in court. So now here it gives you a sense of who these folks are. Right. So it, the case comes with twin efforts by the Justice Department to crack down on the proliferation of illegal guns across the United States, also stepping up enforcement against domestic extremists in the wake of the January 6th assault on the Capitol. Groups with ties to white supremacy, like the National Justice Party, have rallied around the younger Berger, highlighting his case in online posts in which they accuse the Justice Department of, quote, blatant disregard for basic civil liberties and due process, unquote. The younger Berger, this is the guy, this is the podcaster, hosted his podcast, Alt-Right Armory, that was the title of it, under the screen name Glock Doctor 1488. Right. So Glock doctor, obviously, he works on guns. He does stuff to doctors guns. Right. And the 1488 is basically it's a white supremacist um, symbol. You have the 14. It's the 14 words. I'm not going to cite them on here, but it's basically a, you know, defend the white race at all, at all costs kind of stuff. It's a commitment thing. And 88, eight is the eighth letter in the uh, alphabet. H, 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 Heil Hitler. So you see tattoos and white uh, right wing white folks, uh, white supremacists that use that. So that's his screen name, Glock Doctor 1488. Um, so that nod to the white supremacist uh, slogan um, about securing the white children for the future and the Heil Hitler glory. So in Berger's pilot episode of that podcast, he mused that, quote, a white man with a rifle can be very dangerous to the system indeed if he has the right motivation, unquote. And he has since praised um, on his program Eric Frine, who was sentenced to death in 2017 for the ambush slaying of a Pennsylvania State Police Corporal Byron uh, O'Brien K. Dixon, right? So he's encouraged that talks of assassinations. I'll say one more thing about this. So um, when they kind of busted his stuff, they found that they discovered a cache of 12 modified machine guns and 13 silencers during that raid, along with a bunch of 3D printer and some plastic firearm magazines for handguns. Now, these 3D printing things, they, they use a way to print guns without um, serial numbers, right? So you're basically printing these guns are called ghost guns because they're untraceable. Um, for folks who do this, has become increasingly um, popular in the, in the alt-right and the right wing. So um, <clears throat> this is kind of uh, important to um, highlight again because 
that's like a ticking time bomb, right? Um, you've got you got a guy with the ideology, just what I was talking about before in the first segment. You've got the ideology already in place. You've got the self-organizing that's taking place in these small things. You've got an existing kind of media outlet they're using as a way to kind of gather those forces, right? Um, and so all it takes is a trigger event, right, where those machine guns don't just become something that are sitting in the basement of his parents' home will become something that are being taken up and utilized as an assault. So good thing to keep our eyes on, right? Um, and we shall see. We shall follow that case, too. All right. Um, so that's kind of all I got in here with Pennsylvania stuff. Um, I'm really looking forward, like I said, to talking with uh, uh, Stephen Caruso on Monday um, to help sort out what's happening, where we are with the maps, Give us a little summary of kind of like how we got here, where we're at now, and what we can expect going forward. Um, and I think having that is going to be important, especially as, you know, here locally, we're all kind of gearing up to start mobilizing, campaigning, and everything like this um, to try to understand where we're at. Because um, I think it's also going to be important for all of us, anybody who's actually do, working on the ground, doing organizing, helping with campaigns, um, to kind of be up to date on stuff so we know what we're going to be communicating um, to other voters, right? Um, so that we're going to have answers to people's questions. Because um, people will have questions about this stuff. And the more, so the more we know, um, the more we're going to be prepared um, to do some uh, kick-ass organizing going forward. All right, this is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. We're going to take another quick break, and we're going to come back. Um, we're just going to do a quick last call, um, talk a little space stuff, maybe a little TV stuff and so on. Um, we'll come right back after this. So this is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. We'll see you right after the break. This is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken Press. For the past seven years, Raging Chicken Press has brought pull-no-punches, progressive reporting and commentary to the interwebs. Our long-form investigative pieces, stories that no access journalist wants to touch, or rollicking weekly podcasts strive to advance progressive movements and perspectives rooted in the struggles happening across the country or down the street. We've broken national stories and caused our share of discomfort in the halls of power. If we want a progressive future, we need progressive media. And you can help support Pull No Punches, homegrown progressive media today. Become a member of Raging Chicken Press for as little as $5 a month. Simply go to patreon.com slash rcpress and choose your membership level. We need to make sure to keep the movement in the media and the media in the movement. Best way you can do that is to become a member of Raging Chicken today by going to patreon.com slash rcpress. Thank you for your energy, your encouragement, and your support. Keep up the fight. It's Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken, here for Last Call. We talk space news. We talk, we used to talk beer news. We don't do that really that much anymore. TV, film, whatever is going on. Um, <clears throat> a little bit in space news. This is kind of always something I would like to 
follow up on when I can. Um, so S- SpaceX, you might remember, uh, they've got this Starlink system, right? Which in some ways, right, at a, just a, a purely, you know, if you take it out of every context, right, it's really kind of an interesting and potentially game-changing kind of uh technology right so the launch they're launching all these start these like small satellites that are going to circle the globe and potentially provide cheap satellite-based internet connections for anybody on the planet right so basically what you eliminate is like you eliminate the need for um wires and cables and all that kind of stuff Right. Um, and it can provide direct link within there. Now, of course, we can talk about what that might do to the kind of monopoly of the Internet and all this. stuff. Like I said, I'll just totally, completely devoid of context. It's kind of an interesting idea. But the minute you put it in context, right, there's like problem after problem after problem after problem. Right. And so we talked about this last week, too, as well, how, you know, they're planning on crashing the uh, the International Space Station into the uh, the Pacific Ocean in the you know early 30s. 2030s and it's going to be it's going to be a i'm going to cry that day i think i swear to god i'm that much of a nut for that stuff but um so everything's going to be turned over to the privatization of space right because there's been no plans to put something in the in the place of that rather they're going to turn it over to um the kind of the space industry as a way to um um Okay, Ross, just, I'm sorry, I'll come back to that in a second, Ross. Um, so what they look at, um, people in the space industry, they turn over to these private companies, which are can be headed by these billionaires to be able to make and determine what we have up in space right now, right? Um, the only other alternative, of course, is the the newly being developed, like the, the Chinese space station, right? They just are, are building out and they have plans to continue to build out their space station. Now, because of the laws of the United States, the United States is not allowed to work with China on any kind of space-based stuff. So China's like, okay, we're just going to do it on our own, right? But, you know, once you basically excluded um, like a, a country, right, another kind of like major power uh, with kind of space aspirations, which you excluded from, and then now they kind of outpace you and they're out ahead, guess what's going to happen? They're not going to allow you in, <laughs> right? I mean, it's like, duh. And they've already got plans. They've got a schedule for building out the space station and beginning to um, settle stuff on the moon. Right. To, to put the first moon base out there and all this stuff. And like, you know, I said, look, Kim Stanley Robinson, my like all time favorite sci fi writer. Um, he wrote a book called Red Mars. Right. A few years ago. And, you know, he consistently does this. Right. Because he's the kind of this is why I like his work so much is because I really love science fiction where you're taking existing dynamics. Right. Um, that exist. Right. And then you're projecting them in the future. You're going to say, okay, where does this go? Right. And what is like, what happens from here? What is, if we, if we take this thread, how does it play out? Right. The Mars trilogy, which totally captivated me. Right. It was basically saying that those books came out at a time when we're starting to see the kind of the, the globalization, corporate globalization happening. Right. And so it's like, what happens if you extend that corporate globalization to the way that, Mars gets settled, right, in the kind of distant future. And then what happens to these other kind of alternative, say, resistance groups, right? And what are the opportunities for us reassembling, right? What does it happens to the role of science and all that? We project that out and it just does it in an absolutely fascinating way. But of in his recent books, he starts to bring the, the um, he started to bring the 
the lens of the future closer and closer to the present. And Cory Doctorow has, has remarked on this in his um, on his podcast, um, Cory Doctorow podcast, um, about how you know that that process of moving closer has come. And so we got to Red Mars. I mean, Red Mars is, doesn't take place in the distant futures; it's kind of in the near future. Right. And because Kim Stanley Robinson is, is kind of in, you know, he researches all the stuff, he reads about all this stuff. He knows that, you know, about China's plans for going and doing this. So China figures really largely in Red Mars. I'm sorry, Red Moon. Right. And that's why it's Red Moon. Right. Um, and China is like the first to start building this stuff out. The United States is really late to the game and they kind of have what basically seems like, a you know, kind of a little house on the prairie version of a moon base um, that goes on there. Um, so basically if you take, you look at a U.S. airport, right, right now, right, you take LaGuardia airport and you compare it to like, you know, a comparable airport and say outside Beijing or Shanghai, right? It's like, uh, you know, everybody basically says it's like going from, uh, you know, the space age to, uh, you know, the, the early 20th century, right? I mean, it's like the differences are so stark and so huge. So anyways, that's what, um, that's good look for project this. I got way, way off the topic. Anyways, that was the, the whole idea about the, the space station being crashing down the places. So that's, what's going to happen. What we're choosing to do here in this country. Um, right. And you know, yeah, in this country primarily is we're basically saying, okay, we're going to leave it up the decisions are going to be made by private corporations. Right. And we're going to hand over the decision-making capacity and abilities to them. And so that's why you get something like SpaceX's Starlink, right? Because it's done with you know, the aspirations of one you know, of like Elon Musk and SpaceX in in their head, but what they'd like to offer. But they're doing it just thinking about their own specific interest. They're not thinking about what the impact is going to be um, on other things in orbit. Uh, they're not going to think about what it's going to impact our view of the night sky or astronomers' view of the night sky. Um, and now NASA has just basically come out and say, look. SpaceX is planning on launching another 30,000 of these little these satellites as part of its Starlink system, right? And so they're going to have that complete coverage and all this stuff. And they're saying, hey, you know what's going to happen? This is actually going to interfere with the, the Hubble Space Telescope's ability to kind of see certain things in the night sky because the satellites are going to be in its, in its, in its uh, uh, what do you call that, your, your line of sight, right? And they're also saying... Right, because of the way that the um, NASA kind of works to kind of detect um, um, asteroids, this has been kind of increasingly an issue. Right, they're following, tracking different asteroids, trying to determine if there's ever one that's ever going to be um, um, that's ever going to actually hit the Earth. So they track this. Is actually have an asteroid tracking program um, that this is those thirty thousand small satellites, right, uh, may give us uh, thirty thousand plus. Um, may make it more difficult um, or impossible for the agency to detect incoming asteroids. So, once again, don't look up. <laughs> uh, Ross just chimed in too as well. He was saying this a, this a little bit back. Um, it said, if you look at Woke PA, uh, they are actively petitioning to get people like M Melissa Berger fired. That's insane. Uh, she's somebody who's being targeted, currently targeted right now. Um, by uh, the online uh, kind of right-wing um, brown shirt snitch site, Woke PA. So um, there you have it. Uh, okay, what else do I want to say? Oh, so, okay, yeah, so I was going to talk about foundation and some other stuff. So this has been an ongoing conversation too as well. I know like Chris is really, um, uh, Chris is a fan of the show. He's, uh, we go back and forth on Discord quite a bit on our Discord channel, which you can sign up for too if you want. Uh, information on that is in the show notes. Um, 
and he's he's a big fan of of Foundation. Um, and I've been kind of like, oh, the jury's still out on it. Okay, so I've I've watched the the conclusion of the first season now, and now I I think I think I'm on board, <laughs> right? Um, the 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 conclusion of it, right? Um, ties together a bunch of um a bunch of lines, a storylines. Um, in a way that I can kind of see a little bit better about where it's going, and I like the direction that it's going. Um, they, the the there's ten of, the season is ten episodes, and the tenth episode is one of these that is just freaking awesome. It was an awesome episode. So um, fingers, fingers. <laughs> Thumbs up. What? I know what's going on in my brain. Thumbs up to that. Um, I'm off. So definitely, definitely one to watch. Um, if, if you haven't read um, the Foundation series, uh, Isaac Asimov's uh, Foundation series, um, just know this ahead of time. If you decide that you're going to watch it, it's it's going to it'll take a little time to just wrap your head around, say, some of the scope and the the, the world building stuff. Um, and I, I read. I, I God, I read. It, to be honest with you, I don't remember how much I read of the book. As I was watching the series, more of it was coming back, but I have like no concrete memory of sitting there reading the book. So that's that's a weird thing, right? So I know I've read it, but I can't. I don't know how much, how far it went, or how much of it I read. But so I saw it kind of coming back in my memory, and it's um, and so I was like, oh yeah, okay, now this is this is making sense. I see where that blah blah blah. Uh, without that, I'm not sure how much it, would be. it might actually not it actually might actually help not to have read the book. So. I don't know, but definitely it's cool. I'm looking forward to starting Ozark. Um, Ozark is uh, its latest season of that show. Just man, that always grabs me. I think that the pacing of that show is so freaking good. Um, and it's kind of it, it's like that moments of say like the cringe, the kind of there's nobody's really good. You know, it's it's like one of those shows. Um, you know, the characters are like. You have these care. I mean, for me at least, I mean, you have these characters who you're just like are really compelling characters, but they're not like good characters, you know. But they're not just like the anti-hero. They're kind of complex and um crazy. Um, take it easy, Amy. We'll see you later. Uh, she's checking out. Thank you, thank you. Um, last thing I want to say. So, the one thing I want to kind of put a note on. So, um, the the show. For those of you who know that my obsession with the uh, Dungeons and Dragons, uh, you got to have. Uh, oh, Amy. Well, let's see. Amy says the one with Tom Hardy, 2017 on Hulu. That's what she's saying. The one with Tom Hardy. Uh, later, pe- meeting in. Uh, check out Taboo. It's called. It's a Tom Hardy, um, 2017 on Hulu. Okay. All right. We'll do. Check it out. Um, so there's a uh, there's a show like. You may have heard of Critical Role. Critical Role is kind of like you know, like the the star of the the D and D voice actor live stream shows, right? Um, they've got like millions of viewers, and you know they've kind of helped launch this you know little subculture of of D and D streams and uh, popularize it and things like this. Um, even though there's been other streams around, but this kind of really took off for a bunch of reasons. But um, and they have books that are connected to them now. And there is like, um, and this is, so they have a, a animated series that just dropped. Right. And I was actually, I, I, I just started watching some of critical role stuff. Right. I watched, you know, as you know, like, here's my, here's my mug, right. The dungeon run. That's like, uh, that's what got me in. Thanks to my brother. My brother said, check this out. I did. I'm totally hooked. Um, 
but so anyway, so but I wanted you know I finished that season. I was like, man, I just I'm jonesing for it. I, I love having that playing and, and the, the background as I'm trying to just work on mindless stuff. And um, so I started watching some of the Critical Role stuff. The first season I just couldn't get into because it's still you start in the middle of their game where they start having regular shows and they start streaming it. So it's, you have to pick up on it and there's a lot of insider stuff and everything. But anyways, it got translated into uh, the characters are really kind of interesting. And um, I like the world, right. They have it there. This, I, I, I'm not as big a fan of the storytelling um, in um, critical role as I am with dungeon run. But so they have Vox, the uh, legend of Vox Machina. And I'm like, I don't know if you're interested in this stuff. I was really disappointed, right? In that, in one thing in particular, right? It's the, how would you say it? It's like the, there's like a frat boy-ness to some of it, right? Like there's one, like they actually have, Right in the first in the first show, right? They actually have like, if you've watched, and I'm sure this is what they were trying to reproduce, right? Which is also problematic. Um, the first the first season of um, uh, the Game of Thrones, right? That was just like nudity everywhere, right? And you had, you know, the you know you had the the lead character, right? Um, Little person who's a dwarf in the in the uh, in the show is what they call him the show, so I'm using that word. Um, and he's like the you know the sex addict or whatever. And so now you've got this show, um, Vox Machina, it's animated, and they've got one of those scenes in it, right? They got a they got a, like a quote unquote nude scene with the the you know, um, the gnome character. Now he's gonna taking on that one. I was like, really, you really need that. You got to have that, right? As part of that, you got to have the kind of the retrograde kind of like, you know, frat boy humor as part of as part of this. And that bothers me primarily because, you know, on this show, uh, we've had uh, we've had discussions about this before, about how there's some really cool stuff that is happening around inclusiveness and like critiquing questions of race, right? Kind of like really actively resisting kind of like deep, like sexism and misogyny. And so really progressive, interesting stuff that kind of can bring this, this kind of role-playing, you know, environment into a really cool conversation with kind of a multi-racial, multicultural democracy, right? <laughs> and uh, and to see this is the show that gets launched as it's coming out of that was just kind of a disappointment because it's really kind of, it reaffirms the kind of like, you know, <clears throat> you know, even though there's like, there's, there's men and women who are, who've been taking part of it, right? And the women are strong characters, I'll say that, <clears throat> but it brings this kind of like, um, outmoded way of kind of like engaging with some of these questions. Now, you know, maybe I'll, I'll see that it'll, it'll take a different direction, but <clears throat> you have some of that. There's, I mean, some really good voice acting in it. There's some good, uh, um, the storyline is interesting thus far. Um, but you know, it's like <clears throat> a little disappointing. So <clears throat> anyways, so that's all I got for this week, everybody. Um, yes. Uh, remember the, uh, Amy has suggested that we check out taboo. Um, that is on Hulu, uh, Tom Hardy, 2017. Um, I will go check that out. Um, thank you everybody for tuning in. Thanks for the comments. Thanks for the discussion. And thank you all for the work that you do. Um, and, um, if you're out there on Twitter, uh, I want to remind you to, uh, if you haven't already, 
um, to uh, send your best wishes to um, st- um, Starry-Eyed JGC. Uh, she's on Twitter, and she's one of our Twitter warriors. And uh, she lost her dog, Juno, this weekend. So just want to kind of give her that shout-out, let her know we're thinking about her. All right, so this is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. Um, thank you all for tuning in. I remember on Monday at 1 p.m. special time, we've got Stephen Caruso from the Pennsylvania Capital Times. Um, we're looking forward. We're trying to get uh, Diana Lagerman on the show next week, too, as well. So we've got some good stuff coming up. Talk to you soon, everybody. 